writers, agents, and publishers, for the first time since the Gutenberg Press, find themselves lost in a maze of mystery as technology alters the shape of the publishing industry. Searching for Answers is a group of writers throwing pop culture, writing, and publishing into a crucible of clarity, passion, and humor. This group is the Right Pack. In this episode of Right Pack Radio, we are going to discuss why everyone loves a mystery. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Right Pack Radio. This is your host, producer, and crazy person, David Allen Lucas, author of Crazy Things, president of St. Louis Writers Guild, president of Winding Trails Media, martial arts instructor, voice actor, and oh my God, is there an end to this list? Um, I will say, though, really fast, Winding Trails Media, which is the host of Right Pack Radio, is going to have another show joining the Right Pack Radio coming out soon. It'll be in the fall of 2018. More information will be announced at a later date. Stay tuned. You will learn about it all through our social media and eventually, of course, announced on, our, on this podcast. I will say this. You will not have to do anything special to actually listen to it. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, TuneIn, etc., it will come underneath Right Pack Radio. If you listen to it on YouTube, just go to Winding Trails Media on YouTube, and I'll have a separate playlist out there of that show. All right, enough of that with me today. Oh, and for those who want to know if Melanie and I, where we're at in our little fun um, competition. competition, the answer is nothing's changed. We're actually, this is a double episode. We're recording on the same day as, as last week's. So, with that said... I want to toss this over to my lovely co-host. Hi, my name is Kathleen Kayembe. I write speculative fiction. You can find uh, my short story and novelette, You Will Always Have Family, a Triptych, and The Fairy Tree, and Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines. Um, the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 12, edited by Jonathan Strand. And um, you can find an essay of mine on Octavia Butler in the Hugo-nominated anthology, Luminescent Threads, Connections to Octavia E. Butler. And because we're airing in the future, we will find out whether or not I won a Shirley Jackson Award in July. Yay! I didn't have to prompt any of that. Yay! <laughs> I knew it was coming. I just went ahead and did it. <laughs> oh, sorry. The cheerleader in me has, is sitting here happy. So, over to... Hi, my name is Chanel Achan. I write speculative fiction. I write literary fiction. Sometimes... Sometimes. Um, <laughs> I am currently, let's see, I'm not entirely sure when this airs. It's probably going to be still having just gotten to New Orleans. August 12th. It yeah. should be ballpark. Okay, so then I will be getting ready for orientation for my MFA program. Um, I will likely also be trying to frantically finish this novel so that I can get it. David's giving me a look. Oh, God. Um, so that I can get it sent out uh, to the agents that want to see it Yay. in the next plural. few months. That was a plural agent. Sis, sis, sis. We know you can sis, do it. Sis, sis, sis. You got this. You got this. And by the way, I'm going to go ahead and hijack a little bit of that. Just to let you know that when an agent says, send me your work, you do have time to clean it up before you send it to them. 
You don't have to turn around and do it that next day. Moving on to my lovely competition. Hi, I'm Melly Lucas. I am working on a fantasy novel, a first draft, and I this is my drawer novel. So I that means that once it's done, the current goal is to put it in a drawer. Meaning, I don't even think about, I'm not even thinking about trying to pitch it right now. I might change my mind once it gets finished, but right now my goal is to finish. Yay, and also with us is the Madama Murderer and Mayhem herself. Fedora Amos, I write Victorian whodunits, like Jack the Ripper in St. Louis, which by the way is not totally filled with blood and violence and guts. It's really more of a cozy than anything else, so... And Mayhem at Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And coming in 2019 is Have Your Ticket Punched by Frank James, brother of the infamous outlaw Jesse James, the one who was smart enough to live until a natural death of old age. I'm also president of Greater St. Louis Sisters in Crime. And with us today also is a man who writes about snakes and trombones. Um, a man who writes fantasy from Hannibal. Uh, I'm Ryan P. Freeman, and yes, I do write uh, Hannibal. No, I write fantasy, and I live in Hannibal. Uh, I'm uh, also the founder of the Hannibal Writers Guild. Um, my, uh, uh, you can find my indie books on my website, ryanpfreeman.com. And um, I recently got picked up by Metamorphosis Literary Agency. Woo! So, um, uh, in... Uh, 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 my next, you know, like traditionally published Hawk on Wood or whatever, uh, uh, book nameless, uh, out to publishing houses, hopefully this And Ryan, the book nameless, that's the actual title, correct? It's the actual title. The title is called Nameless. Thank you. Uh, the main character is called Nameless. So, okay. not nameless, shouldn't have a name. Gotcha. And where, Ryan, did you get that agent, by the way? I got it at Gateway Con, which is How awesome. about that? Yay, Gateway Con. And also with us today is the Admiral of the Pirate Flotilla that hovers above London. And I'm sorry, wherever else you want to take it. Okay, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. They do hover above London. Uh, totally. Yeah, I'm Brian R. Cook. I am the author of the Iron Chronicles. Your Dream, Adventures, and Tales of the Gearblade, which will be coming out later this year. Uh, beyond that, I've got a bunch of short stories that are out, so go check them all out. There's a whole variety of them. Uh, you can find out that and more at bradarcook.com. Excellent. Today we're going to talk about everyone loves a mystery. Like the romance genre, you will find mystery in every genre. At least almost every genre. I can't think of any that doesn't, but the second I say that, of course, somebody's going to say, but it's never in. Okay, fine. So. Yeah, I'm such an awful person. Every I'm fiction. trying to figure out, is there something yeah. that doesn't have mystery in it? Every know. fiction genre, I would say. It's Maybe not in nonfiction. Yeah, every mystery. Yeah, every <laughs> regular fiction. And there's different kinds of mysteries out there. You mentioned Cozy yes. as one. Um, you do have a hard boiled as another, the crime, uh, the police noir, or a police procedural, and so forth. So, first off, I'm just going to go, go ahead. Oops, I'm already getting a dovetail, so I'm going to pause myself. So, go you have it. all those subsets of the mystery genre, uh-huh. but you also have mystery elements in other genres. They're, yes. they're different. 
they are not different in kind. They are different in amount yes. more than anything yes. else, I'd say. Please. So yes, Iron Zulu is a mystery. So it's true. The second book of my series, right? And so people who don't know. why is it? First off, why do we like mysteries so much? And then how do mysteries? Where we'll go through the t- different types of mysteries. I want to do that and talk about why they lend themselves to other genres so well. So I'm looking, of course, at the current president of Sisters in Crime in St. Louis. Where did you want to start on these list things yet? Well, let's go first off. Why do people love mystery so much? I mean, it's nothing. It's nothing more than mayhem and murder. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. being facetious. It's a people. lot more than that. But but I think the basic reason is the basic reason why we're human in the first place. We love. To know what's on the other side of the wall, what is just beyond something we can see, it drives us to find out new things. We are curious. We are infinitely curious. And that separates us, I think, from virtually any other animal on the planet. Though there are some which are pretty curious, too, but not to the extent I think that people are. Nor can they look as far ahead as people can. So I think that's the reason why we're curious. Um, I was going to say, just from a writer's standpoint, if you take classes or read books on writing, what you want to do as a writer is be able to make the reader ask questions, make them wonder what is going to happen next. And you want to give readers a sense that there is a mystery that they can learn the answer to if they keep turning the pages. So just from a basic writing perspective, your job as an author is to induce the, the feeling of mystery and and curiosity in readers. Make them want to solve whatever it is or find out what happened next. And I think that brings us to the first technique of mystery that everybody should probably pay attention to because it applies to not just mystery but also to romance or to mainstream fiction or whatever fiction you like to apply it to. And that is the use of secrets, the unknown. We all love to find the answer to secrets. We want to have it revealed to us ultimately. And so suggestion number one, include secrets. Things that will not be revealed until perhaps the very end of the book. So one thing about secrets though, I mean, is it does it matter what that secret is? Does it or is it something that has to be and I know my answer to my own question, does it have to be something that the reader's gonna care about? Well, that, of course, is the best kind. But anything which keeps struggling along in the back of the mind saying, well, I wonder about, I wonder about this, I wonder about that, and is the character actually going to do this, that, or the other, which you were led to believe at some point in time? Those are questions which keep driving the story forward, the reader onward, and so... You don't want to give them too much information too soon. That's technique number two. Don't give them too much too soon. And make sure that they have a decent payoff when they finally get to it. Ryan, over to you. Um, I was thinking I wanted to ask the people here who, who primarily write uh, mystery. Is it, when you're writing mystery, is it more than just satisfying curiosity? How, how so? 
more than satisfying curiosity. I'm not sure I exactly understand yeah. what he means. Well, I, I think I'm going to take a stab at it, and Ryan, you tell me if I've gone so off course that I should be a sinking ship on your question. <laughs> You've got... In the mystery genre itself, usually it revolves around the question of justice. Not always, but 90-some-odd percent, I'm going to call it, revolve around the concept of justice. Whether that is legal justice to vigilante-style justice that's going from your cozy to your hard-boiled, as an example, of the spectrum. In other genres, you've got, let me just pick um, Indiana Jones, either the books or... A couple of the, the first two, at least the first movie itself, as well as the third, I'm kind of ignoring the second one, is the mystery of what is this that they're really after? It's the MacGuffin. Yes, we know he's after, in the first one, the Lost Ark, but what is it about the Lost Ark that is so important? And, well, of course, will Indy find it and what the, what the, what this happens when he does find it? Yeah, um, like right around right around those lines. Like, how? Like, is it more than just how will this all work out? Yes, in this yeah. in this every story, every fiction story, it seems to me has to have a story arc in which the main character, your protagonist, whoever it is, male, female, whatever, comes to some new realization at the end of and because of the events that lead up to it. And so you have goals. You have short-term goals, to be sure, but you have also long-term goals, which may take more than one book, more than ten books, who Mm -hmm. knows. But you have something in the future which you hope will be realized, will be satisfied, and will be satisfying, therefore, to the reader. And one of the things, look at you here, coming, um, Kathleen's going to be right after me with this. I'm going to say is, there are several types of mysteries that are out there, if you write mystery, and where that those types can bleed into other fictions. But two of the biggest ones is the whodunit versus the howdunit. You can have, if you saw the movie Solo, I don't care if you liked it or not, stop throwing fanboy stuff at me. That solo was so horrible. You have a bank heist. You have a train heist. That whole part there is a how done. How will they get the heist completed? If you saw Ocean's 8, that's also a heist. That's also a, a type of how done it. Another version of a how done, of course, goes back in time. I'm going to throw Columbo out there, which is a perfect example. Who done it is figuring out, of course, who actually is the person who committed the crime or who's causing, in the case of um, the TV book, Three Musketeers, the TV shows based on that and so forth is, who is behind the actual intrigue that's happening, that's causing the French court to be in at such jeopardy? We as readers know that, but that's the question that the characters are trying to find out. Those are just some odd examples to throw out there. Go for it. You had a dovetail. Um, well, Fedora, you mentioned satisfying, and I want to get into that a bit more um, because Brian, you're asking about whether, like, whether curiosity is enough to make a reader 
want to continue through the mystery. Is that yeah? Is that right? He's nodding. Okay. For the audience who can't see yes. him, which is everybody. <laughs> um, so one of the like curiosities is good, but like a satisfying payoff, hopefully, is what the reader is going to get at the end. And like Fedora, I was hoping you go into that a little bit more. Like what makes something satisfying as opposed to just like something to be curious about, like as far as endings and mysteries go. Well, I think that uh, I hinted at one thing, and that uh, David also hinted at one thing, character, mm -hmm. because readers get invested in the characters, and that's why they keep coming back to book after book in a series, for example, or story after story, because they feel invested in the main character, and we want to see that character do what that character is supposed to do arrive at some place new and better than that person was to begin with. So that is one thing. And the other is justice. This can take a lot of different forms, of course, but in mystery, in any typical mystery, really, whether you're trying to find out how the crime was done or who done it, either way, you start out with something wrong. You start out with a bad thing. And there needs to be some positive resolution to this bad thing, whatever it might be. It may mean that you need to, like Agatha Christie does, bring out a whole bunch of suspects and all of a sudden figure out who done it. Or in the how done it, Columbo starts out with a good idea of who done it. And of course, all of the viewers at home already know who done it because that's the first scene they always have. So, how does he and his thought process evolve to the point where he can bring down this criminal who is a mastermind of some kind? Along with it, I can't want to, uh, Brad, you are next. I've got you as a dovetail next. Um, but I do want to come back and circle around to what you just talked about because. There's a difference between mystery and thriller, like there's a difference between science fiction and fantasy, and yet they share elements of it. And I want to talk about the fugitive as, a, as another way of the how-done-it and solving it. So, Brad, coming over to you. Yes, okay, so this is actually a huge thing with me in terms of what it means to give a satisfying payoff to a mystery and what it means to leave somebody with something hanging that they can then contemplate. Uh, these are two very different things and please, please, please don't piss me off. Um, <laughs> the reason I say this is that there are wonderful mysteries that I want to contemplate. Like what does the uh, top at the end of Inception mean? You know, I don't need the, the final answer, and I'm not going to go into all the different possibilities as to what it can mean, but, you know, what, is it, what does it have to do? I want to think about that. That's cool. However, um, then on the other hand, an R plus L equals J, uh, which took forever to pay off. But when it did pay off, it paid off so sweetly because it was an answer. It was, yes, this, is, this character is related to these people, Boom, it's end over. What you've been thinking for over a decade has been true. You you know, awesome way to go. That is cool. However, on the bad side of this, you have um, National Treasure with page 47. 
they go through the whole movie going, yeah, you know, it's on page 47. You know, oh yeah, don't look at page 47, which was supposed to be the third movie, and then the third movie got canceled. So now that will never pay off what was on page 47, and that will forever irk me. <laughs> so you can do these things beautifully, and the difference is is that there are things that we want to contemplate. There are, there are themes and ideas that we want to, to kind of express and think about and what, what meaning could have. It's the English teacher thing. But there are answers, too, that need to be given. And so if you're giving a question that needs an answer – Give that answer. Even if that answer is 10 years down the road, give that answer. If it's something that can be contemplated, something that you want them to debate and, you know, endlessly go on about, then you can leave it open. And knowing the difference between those two will is the difference between getting wonderful emails and getting, you know, screaming letters. Yep. And, Kathleen, you are up next, but Brad threw something out there that unless the audience has followed us for a while won't know, so I just want to clarify. He said it's the English teacher situation or English teacher scenario. What he's talking about is the writer has described a room as blue and the teacher comes up and says, it's because they're showing sadness or depression. No, the answer was it was blue because it's blue. Go over to you, Kathleen. Just a cigar. Exactly. Um, So, Fedora, you mentioned series and something that I've noticed about a lot of mysteries is they come in series. Like you follow a PI or a or a detective. Like same with crime TV shows. Like you follow the same team mm-hmm. and they solve one mystery one week or in one book and another mystery in another week or another book and like they slowly grow and change through the series uh, in, in the ones that I particularly enjoy. Um, but but it seems like mystery lends itself to series in an interesting way that not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily apply to other genres so much. Well, I'm not sure that it doesn't apply to other genres, but certainly mystery does lend itself to series. For example, lately I've been binge-watching Monk. (laughs) I love Monk. (laughs) Of course, he is such an extraordinary character that he observes everything, and he only needs two little bits of evidence in order to decide who the murderer is. What I think this is, is kind of an evolution of the series, which once upon a time was primarily focused on the crime and solving it. Mm -hmm. And modern TV series, I think, get much more into characterization and how the characters change or how they're difficult or how they're different from everybody else. And that is what makes them special and what makes the series thrive. So I think that any mystery writer has to be very much aware of the fact that characters are really the most important thing in the long run. And if you can have a wonderful plot and a different means of killing somebody and all of these these little things which are extraordinary and wonderful, have them in there. But realize your real bread and butter is going to be the characters that people can't live without. I'm going to just, I'm dovetailing, I'll get you Kathleen, you're next. Um, I think that is really more of a modern, and I don't disagree with you, but really more of a modern approach to the mystery than in the past. I'm going to use Agatha Christie and my own favorite, which is Earl Stanley Gardner, as examples with Perry Mason and with Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple. We really don't see much changes in those characters 
be it television, be it radio, or be it the books. They don't, they're, they're almost stagnant. It's almost like the old Star Trek stories where everything just hit the reset button. But modern day, I think you're right. People expect that more of the characters. It's characterization growth. Go ahead. Uh, one of the things that I like about fan fiction is that I get to see characters that I'm familiar with in new and interesting situations. And that that's something that I like about mystery series as well, at least modern day ones. Um, because I get to hang out with a character that I know and that I love and watch her solve a mystery that is completely different from the one that she solved last time. And I get to see her relationships change. Um, I'm thinking about the Mercy Thompson series by Patricia Briggs right now. Um, you start out knowing some things about Mercy Thompson, the main character, and you slowly get to meet her friends and see her romantic relationships change. But you also get to know more about the world she's in. These are paranormal investigation mysteries. So there's magic, there's fae, there's um, weird creatures, there's vampires, there's ghosts. But like each mystery deepens my understanding of the character, deepens my understanding of the world. But I get to hang out with somebody that I already loved. And and I really appreciate that about mystery series in particular. Um, that's that's what I was thinking when I said mysteries tend to lend themselves well to series. If you have a strong character and a book is a mystery, then every book can be a new mystery and you still get to be with that character. Fedora then Chanel? And I think you're absolutely right in most respects, but there are some things you can substitute for having a new mystery. One of my favorites, and you know, I feel guilty whenever I say this, but Janet Ivanovich is one of my favorites, and I read every new book that comes out, and she writes the same damn book every time. <laughs> she absolutely does. But the humor saves it. While Stephanie Plum is always 27 or whatever age she is and has been for the last 20 years, and a lot of people are going to object to that, and the fact that she does a whole lot of things that no bail bondsman skip tracer could possibly do, she is still that same lovable Stephanie Plum with two guys, both of them amazing. And so it's a mystery romance with a central character, and it's the same book every time. But the humor saves it. Um, so I was going to ask more specifically, um, we, you've got the fact that mystery tends to lend itself towards series, but there's also the particular type of series, mm-hmm. like the Nancy mm-hmm. Drew, the Boxcar Children, where the the character takes the back seat and literally it's just the episodic nature of like crime and solving crime. Um, do you think, and I know that you guys have mentioned earlier that that is a, a bit more dated. Do you think that that's that sort of series has a place in mystery moving forward in time? What do you think, Dave? Nancy Drew better always be solving yeah. mysteries. Um, <laughs> that is a very interesting question to put it to. It's a question of character versus plot and what's driving the story. And I don't think in the short term that's going to go backwards, to back to being plot pure plot-driven. Now, there's always going to be stories that are plot-driven. Um... I don't think the reader is going to want that. Now, that can change. I mean, Perry Mason was written up until he died in the late set, or in the, somewhere in the 70s. 
And it started off back ooh, thir- 40s, 30s, I'm looking at. 20s. Was it only back in the 20s? Anyway, clearly back around World War II, if not before. Um, there's, so there's a lot of time that has changed there. I hope they didn't go back to being plot driven. And by the way, with Perry Mason, just an FYI, he did change over those decades. His very fir- the very first book, Perry Mason is more likely to punch you out and to keep Della Street on his lap as a lovable secretary. Wink, wink. And when we get to know him more towards the 70s, 60s and 70s, he is more the trial lawyer who will rip you apart on the witness stand, but will likely never punch you in the face. So I did not need to know all that about Perry Mason's sex life. I did not. I, I left out a lot of it. But anyway, I just want to share that part to you. I have and got... I'm going to let... I want Fedora to toss in her idea of she disagrees or agrees with what I said. Then I've got Melanie and I've got Ryan. Go ahead. Well, I was thinking about some of the real old-timers, like... Um, Oh, Dashiell Hammett. Oh, yes. 1920s, he was already a big star. And he created Sam Spade. And there were, what, Dane Curse, Maltese Falcon. Yes. Maybe one or two others. But then he went on to a different character. And I never understood why, and I still don't, because people love Sam Spade. And there certainly could have been more movies with Bogey as Sam Spade. Mm-hmm. And there were other characters as Sam Spade before him, too. So it was a lot more, I think, uh, disjointed in those times. And now it's more of a find a recipe that works and follow it again and again and again and again. (laughs) So the times have changed to a large extent. You okay over there, Kathleen? (laughs) I'm sorry. Like, I love me some police procedurals. Numbers was one of my favorites. But, Mm -hmm. like... After my mom was like, it's not going to be that guy. It's this point in the episode. I was like, oh, no. Like, I can't watch the show now without knowing what beats they're hitting at what time. So I'm like, okay, we've definitely met the villain by this point, but I'm not Mm -hmm. sure which one it is. Okay, they're going to figure out how to do the thing. And then they're going to realize, no, there was a problem with the math. And then they're going to fix the problem with the math and solve the thing. And that's going to hit you about, like, 40 minutes. Yeah, (laughs) that's something else. So, like... Something else too that the, you're hitting. Go there for is it. the worry about like things becoming formulaic, like when you when you take something that works and then you just find it like tr- find and replace. Like um, there's a Jennifer's not here for this, but um, there's a series of novels called uh, Vampire Hunter D. They're Japanese mm-hmm. novels. There are some um, wonderful films about Vampire Hunter D. And because of those films, I was like, oh, they they translated the novels. I'm going to read them, and they're the same novel. They're, they're the exact same novel. I read a number of them, and they're the exact same novel. Just the names have changed, and the names of towns have changed. <laughs> but, like, everything happened. I'm going to th- add one, two things to that, then I'm going to throw it off to our list, which so I've got Melanie, Ryan, and Brad in that order. Um, Sorry. Two, no, no, you, no, I'm kind of glad you opened up the door. First off, police procedurals, they come about thanks to Ed McBain. Who was real name was Evan Hunter? Um, he wrote the eighty. Yeah. I get the number wrong. Eighty eighth, eighty second precinct novels. Yeah, some precinct. Yeah, I'm not some sure precinct. Yeah. And those characters did say kind of stagnant. Yeah. 
But it's multiple. It was not so much you were worried about how the characters would behave. It was more of how the system worked to try to catch the bad guy. Um, and that I got a story I'll share after Mike on how I met him. It was really fun. Um, but so there's that aspect. But number two, I read a book called "The Secrets of a World's Best Storyteller." The Secret Writing Techniques of Earl Stanley Gardner, which was, um, which is a book that's out of print. I may not have gotten that title completely correct, as you heard me hesitate because I don't have it in front of me. But after reading that book, and it has Earl Stanley Clark Gardner's plot machine in it, and it is it's an interesting plot machine, but it does hit those beats like you were talking about. It ruined my ability to enjoy other plot-driven mystery authors because I could see. The plot. I if I can get, I was solving the entire book of mysteries by the third chapter, and poor Melanie, who has gone to mystery movies with me, has heard me says whisper. I won't ruin it for her, but I will go. I know who did it. <laughs> and within about ten minutes into the movie, more Sometimes. or less, Sometimes. depends on the movie. Depends on the movie, and, and I just shut up. And let it go. Yeah, okay, I'm being pointed to. What? <laughs> Murder by death must have been an experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a fun movie that sends off mysteries and, you know, bad mystery writing. Mm-hmm. So Melanie, Ryan, Brad. Yeah, but uh, we're saying about episodic. Yeah. yeah. Now that people can binge watch things or binge read things, mm-hmm. like now that we have basically computers, whatever... All of a sudden, if somebody likes something, they can find everything in the series, right. be it TV, movies, or that. So series are suddenly much more popular, and guess what? It's much more obvious. If you're reading a book by an author once a year, you don't remember exactly the book so well. So it's like, okay, good book. I remember that. I love the characters, blah, blah. When you read them one right after another, you notice, hey, this is the same book. The mm-hmm. names of the characters just changed. Mm-hmm. Romances, by the way, this happens all the time. Mm-hmm. You could even go between authors and it's doing it. But yeah. um, very often mysteries, actually, at least the crimes can, if it's a murder mystery, yeah, they very well are often the same. If you vary up the crime, sometimes you get more di- distant differences. But... One of the ways to make them seem more different is to have your detectives change. That's true. But, you know, there's always the first book in the series. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a first book in a detective series should almost by definition be a standalone mystery. <laughs> they all should be. Yeah, they all well, yes, they, they all should be. Still. But the point <laughs> is, detectives change over time. Well, you want to see a detective at the beginning, you know. That's a good place to start, and some of them change more than others. <laughs> yep. Uh, real quick, and I'm, I'm tossing over Ryan, but something you just mentioned. A lot of the reasons why, especially on television, going back to the 70s, 60s, so forth, the reason why you never saw the characters change much is because, and Gene Roddenberry fell into this with Star Trek, you didn't know when the, when the episode was going to air. Mm-hmm. So thus you always had the reset button. Go ahead, Ryan... Brad and Kathleen. Kind of on the same track that Melanie was saying, this just popped up my mind, I'll go to my other thing. Um, but um, in the earlier days of video games, like in the late 90s, um, before, you know, before the rise of really a solid internet, uh, secrets were such a big deal. If you, if you discovered a secret, um, uh, and it was like, it was something special, you know? 
Um, if you if you got, got stuck somewhere, you had to figure it out. Like the story wouldn't progress unless you figured it out. Like play this game called Dust, and in the end, you have to have a showdown with Billy the Kid. And I could never figure out how to get past him until years later, and it wasn't really a thing anymore. But anyways, <laughs> I just want to point out. Um, but uh, the other thing was that um, I don't usually go into mystery, like Solage is saying, just mysteries too often. But what I do, I really love ones that are really nuanced, I can get lost in. Um, I don't know how many times I've rewatched Sherlock just because I just love getting lost in that world. Um, and with so many details, I have to wonder, is mystery, when you're writing it, is it something that you have to plot out? Or can you actually pants your way through it? Well, clearly it can be pants through because okay. our Madame of Murder herself does pantsing. That's right. Well, so. that's just incredible. Can I just say that? Like, I'm impressed because I couldn't keep everything straight. I will say that as far as I know, most mystery authors do plot. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, over to Brad, and then Kathleen, then Fedora. Yeah, so uh, I would say this. I got two things real quick, but the first one is on the idea of a writer writing the same character and that character never really changing. On some level, that's kind of exactly what we want as readers. Um, and the reason I throw that out is I don't really want Jack Ryan to suddenly, like, I don't know, get tossed into, like, some weird driving movie or something like that. Uh, more importantly, I want him to be stopping, you know, uh, the latest, uh, you know, whatever terrorism bomb type thing is going to be going off. Same thing with Jason Bourne. Uh, I don't really want Jason Bourne to suddenly get into, like, archery or something like that. Uh, for a scene, sure, but most of the time I want him to be kicking butt. Uh, you know, the hands and fists, that kind of thing. So, on some level, we want that character to be the same character over and over and over again, just in different situations. Uh, you know, James Bond kind of thing. Uh, but, yeah, so to that end, I, I think that's why they work so well is because we as readers love them. Uh, what I really want to throw out, though, is using mystery in other stories. So I write steampunk. Uh, my stories are mostly adventures. But as I was saying earlier, uh, Iron Zulu, which is the second one in the Iron Chronicles series, uh, is a mystery. So it's, and it's a true mystery, as in there's actually several going on. There's a mystery as to what's going on. There's a mystery as to what the greater story, who's the bad guy kind of thing. There's also, uh, you know, there's a couple of murders going on. So who did the murder? So who done it? Um, and I follow the same kind of structure that you follow for a mystery in the sense that you lay out your clues and uh, let the audience start to kind of uh, figure out who the criminal is and then, you know, drops in some red herrings along the way so that they get twisted up and they're not exactly certain. Uh, and then the payoff. But the point I wanted to bring up is I only had about half my novel to do that in uh, because the other half of the novel is uh, the adventure and the rest of the tale that I'm telling. So it was kind of an interesting thing to get to use um, in the sense that I only really, it was a, a trope I was using in the greater story I was telling. Okay, we've got two dovetails going on here. Kathleen and Melanie. Define terms. What is a red herring? And is it really red? And is it a bird? Uh, so a red herring, uh, and I'll let them, you know, the mystery people describe it better, is uh, basically a false clue. Right. Because there are no such things as red herrings this, in real life. I, well, 
Yeah, I thought this was going to be your question, but my question was a little bit broader. Brad just said something very interesting. Maybe Fedora could d d define it. What are the what is the structure of a classical mystery? Or what are the types and the beats that have been talked about? But we never really defined what they were. That's and are fine. they different in a thriller versus a cozy versus a... The answer is yes. They are different between... Thr There's a difference between thrillers and mysteries. I'm going to go ahead and let Fedora okay, answer, though. But yeah. Well, I'm going to start with uh, technique number three, and that is the red herring. The false clue, which leads people often in direction which they eventually discover is, oh, that's not where it's really going. And that's important in order to create intrigue and suspense. Then Ryan asked about plotting as opposed to pantsing. And it's not that I don't, I mean, I don't plot. I do not write a 20-page outline, nothing like that. There are three things I have to know before I start. And I will say that if I knew who the killer was early in the book, I quit writing it because it wouldn't be any fun anymore. One way that I challenge myself is to put in a bunch of stuff that I know I'm going to have to explain at some point, but at the point that I write it, I can't begin to explain it. But I will find a way to explain it by the time the book is over. So what I have to know in order to start a book is exactly, exactly to the date, since I do historical fiction, when and where it happens. Because I use details of the country. Now that my, my main character is, is leaving the United States and she's going to Ireland and then to Portugal and so on. So I have to know the exact date that it starts. Because I want to be in Ireland, for example, on St. Patrick's Day. Alright? And I find events that will lead me into a place and a very specific time. I have to know that. The second thing I have to be able to do is to visualize the black moment. That is what I will be working toward all the way through. I have to be able to see where Jemima McBussell is, that her life is so terribly threatened that everybody's going to want to know how the hell she's going to get out of it this time. That I have to know. <laughs> So, you see, I have to know time and place, and I have to know the uh, black moment. And then I am ready to go off on a trajectory toward that, and will find my way there, and I will come up with weird stuff in the meantime that I know I'll have to explain, and that, for me, is the joy of writing. Hmm. I like it. Um, go ahead, and then I'm going to... I want to talk about mystery novels versus thrillers versus... Um, crime novels because Brad, you used two examples. Jason Bourne was one of them, and I forget who the other one was. Jason. Jack Jason Ryan. Bourne. Jack Ryan. Both of those are thrillers and not mysteries. So I'm okay, good tell, point. I find uh, Jason Bourne punching people in the face very thrilling myself. <laughs> I like. I, I do too. And he's getting kind of long in the tooth for that. No, no. Yeah, the movie was books. Books are different. The books are a lot different than the movie than the yeah. movies with Matt Damon. Um, <laughs> But uh, something that I appreciate about mysteries very much is that I get to learn new things in them. So um, the Sir Peter Wimsey mysteries, for example, like learning about how people ring bells in churches. Like not something that I would ever go looking up on my own. It's not something I would care about on my own. But it's fascinating getting to see like the situations that these mysteries bring 
like our beloved detectives into like you get to learn about an entire different walk of life each book uh-huh. and i find that particularly wonderful the nine tailors a great book by dorothy l dorothy l sayers um throughout so i was one talk about the three di- about the differences i'm reading from an article that's actually in writer's digest um or on their blog site i'm not sure which but anyway i having just quickly read i did say they whoever wrote it did a good job um, mystery novels. I'm going. To, I'm not reading you guys the whole entire article, but I'm picking out the important parts. Mystery novels. A crime is committed, almost always a murder, and the action of the story is the solution of that crime. Determining who did it and why, and obtaining some form of justice. The best mysteries often explore man's unique capacity for deceit, especially self-deceit, and unique, I'm sorry, and demonstrate a humble respect for the limits of human understanding. Structural distinctions are some type of baffling crime, the singularly motivated investigator, though I will say that's not always the case because you do have the police procedural, which usually is a group, the hidden killer, the cover-up, discovery and elimination of suspects, Evaluation of clues and identification and apprehension of the killer. Uh, there are mystery subgenres, which is the cozy, hardboiled detective. Differences there are, as pointed out, you've got Hercule Poirot would be a good cozy. You have um, Sam Spade is a hardboiled police procedural. Go for it. What you got your question? What if you haven't read Hercule Poirot or Sam Spade? What what makes a cozy a cozy? Like what what are the defining characteristics of each subgenre? Yeah. Okay, I was okay. Like, and does one have doilies? So cozy. One of the ironic strengths for the subgenre is the fact that by creating a world in which violence is rare, a bloody act resonates far from far more than it would it would in a more urban or distorted setting. A unique and engaging protagonist, Father Brown, Miss Marple. Um, the crime should be clever, requiring ingenuity or even brilliance on the hero's part to solve. Secondary characters could be coarse, but never the hero or the author. Justice triumphs in the end, and the world returns to its original tranquility. And I would add that uh, cozy writers, except me, <laughs> do not like it to be called cozy. They like to call it traditional mystery. Yeah. Hardboiled is a hero, is either a cop or a PI. doesn't always have to be, but usually they fall into that. They're tough and capable. The moral view is often that of a hard-won experience in the service of innocence or decency. The hero tends to be more world-weary and then bitter, but that ice can be kind of a slippery slope. A strong hero who can walk the mean streets, but who is not himself mean, as Raymond Chandler once put it. A realistic portrayal of crime and its milieu with detailed knowledge of criminal methods and investigative techniques. The style is often brisk and simple, reflecting the unpretentious nature of a hero who is intelligent but not necessarily learned. Although the hero almost always sees that justice prevails, 
there is usually a bittersweet resolution. The streets remain mean, such as such as the human condition. Um, an example, and oh, Mike Hammer! Wow, finally came to me. Mike Hammer would be more likely to shoot you than bring you in, as an, as one example. An example that I like a lot is Easy Rollins from Devil in a Blue Dress. I love Easy Rollins. Isn't that cool? And I cannot think of the author's name right at the moment. Walter Mosley. Okay, good, good. Walter Mosley. Because he is exactly what you just described. He is an ordinary guy, yet he has a lot of difficult experience in his past. And he's trying to do the best for everybody. And he's in a world where that's almost impossible. So he is uh, my... uh, my noir hero, I think. I, I would agree. He's definitely in my top three on noir. Um, medical, scientific, or forensic mysteries, another one. A refinement of a police procedural, which I skipped. I'm sorry, let me back up. Police procedural is a cousin uh, to the hard-boiled subgenre with the unit or precinct taking over for the lone cop. Um, then you have the medical, scientific, or forensic. Mystery is a refinement of the police procedural in which the protagonists, doctors, medical examiners, forensic pathologists, or other technical experts use intelligence and expertise, not guns, as their weapons. Similar to the police procedural with extra emphasis on the physical details of analyzing unusual evidence. Let me pause this for a second by saying while CSI as a show, did this really well. They were lab rats. They would never have questioned a suspect. Just putting it out there. Um, okay, going on. Legal Before or... you do go on, okay, I would go like to it. give my example, my favorite example, go for it. which is Michael Crichton, Andromeda Strain. Yes, that's a good one. Which, you know, it's all about disease and germs, but you don't know that right away. It takes a long time to get into that and certainly to solve it. So I think that's a very well done one. Using real science. Mm -hmm. Legal or courtroom drama. The crime is seen through the eyes of the lawyers prosecuting or defending the case. Uh, It's usually meticulously rendered, rendering of a criminal court procedure and politics, along with how police and and prosecutors work together or don't. Go ahead. Oh, I was... I wasn't raising my hand, but I was thinking about law and order. That's an example. procedural and then the courtroom side. Uh Uh-huh. It did a good job. It did a good combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Really good combination. Okay. Then there's a crime novel. It's a little different. And the crime novel is a genre of, is a genre of focus, where the focus is on the contest of wills between the lawman and the hero and the outlaw opponent. The, and the differing views of morality and the aspects of society they represent. The greatest crime stories deal with a moral accounting on the part of a hero for his entire life or provide some new perspective on the tension between society and the individual. And the kind of theme aspect to that is what is a just society? The story world of a novel is out of balance, somewhere between a state of nature where chaos prevails and those with money and or guns wield power and a police state where paranoia prevails and the state monopolizes power. The hero hopes in some way to, rec- to rectify that imbalance. Um, 
Structural def- distinctions, I've got an example of a crime novel that's really, if you watch it at least a second time around, not crime novel, second movie, a crime new movie, second time around you can see the beats. And I'll tell you that one in a minute. Structural distinctions are, there's seldom any mystery as to who the criminal is. Typically the story starts with a brilliant or daring crime, and then a cat and mouse game of wits and will ensures with the tension created by the increasing intensity of a battle between the opponents. So how catch them? It's not necessarily how catch them. Oceans eight, oceans eleven, all those ones. Those are all the highest. Swordfish would be another one. Um, the one I was going to mention that I definitely the first movie, not so much the second movie, did it so magnificently well. I about cried as I watched it. It's a magnificence of a plot. And that is, and now you see me. Yeah. Hmm. That was so brilliantly done. Okay. Um, you've got the noir subgenre of the hard crime. Um, here, the criminal or someone who is morally cor- compromised, perhaps even a cop, serves as a hero. The thriller. Where mystery stories represent the most more cerebral of the three suspense genres, and crime stories are more dramatic, thrillers are typically the most emotional, focusing on the fear, doubt, and dread of the hero as she faces... I think they use she, because that's actually one of my characters. As she faces some, some form of what Dean Koontz has deemed terrible trouble. This genre is a hybrid of mystery and horror. I was going to say. However, the thriller also shares a literary lineage with the epic and myth. Monsters, terror, and peril prevail. And by the way, monsters don't aren't necessarily... If you really go horror-wise, yeah, you can have zombies or vampires or whatever. People but they can be... Monsters. But usually your human being is your biggest monster. Like Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. Or um, if you've watched ever watched La Femme de Kida, mm-hmm. Point of No Return, or Nikita, um, the movies and TV series, is, it's usually the, the government is... A black part of the government is the monster in reality. Uh, theme f- thematic emphasis... The dangerous world we live in, the vulnerability of the average person, and the inherent threat of the unknown. Structural differences of plot often proceeds along these lines. A demonstrating crime is about to be committed or has been committed with the threat of even worse, even, even worse one in the wings. The perpetrator is known, but his guilt is not absolutely certain, or the hero wishes not to accept the truth of his guilt. The hero is under constant attack and tries to definitively prove the perpetrator's guilt and or stop the next atrocity. So that's The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. The Fugitive, the movie, is a good example, as well as the TV series. Um, Jason Bourne, that we've mentioned before, too, is another example of that where, depending if you go for boot. The movie and the books, people, are different. There's, there's, You can tell where the movie came from, but they are different, so if you haven't read them, please do. Um, the book is very long. The, book is, the books are very long, but where I'm going to go is the... 
the bad people there is, once again, the government aspect of it. Um, every movie by Alfred Hitchcock. Well, almost every movie. He did do a couple of it more, but for the most part, every movie was a thriller. And it normally was the wrong man situation. An innocent person is pulled into the middle of something ugly. Um, thriller subgenres are the epic thriller. Oh, and by the way, going back to Ryan, back back to Jack Ryan, he's a CIA guy, and usually it is something else that's the monster in that case. Uh, Hunt for October, it was the Russians, the uh, Patriot Games, it was the IRA. Okay, epic thriller. This usually concerns the threat of some catastrophe affecting whole communities, cities, countries, even the planet. The threat need not be total devastation. The assassination of a leader will do. But the effect of the action is must be profound. Skipping the rest of that. Psychological thriller or suspense. Here is a threat of still diabolical but more contained, even intimate. Here is shadow is the Silence of the Lambs and everything else with Dr. Hector. Shutter Island, I think, would also Shutter be Island alive. is definitely one. Um, That's a film. Yeah, that's a film. Usually targeting the protagonist and or his family, and the hero is often a relatively ordinary man, woman, or child. The pacing is a bit more deliberate to reflect the ordinary person's difficulty understanding the exact nature of a threat and the enemy and then struggling to respond. The third act, however, moves briskly. Then you've got the supernatural thrower, and that's this is one which I'm going to um, state is where the horror comes into play. And that is a subgenre is something of a hybrid in that the nemesis presents an overwhelming threat. He might be Satan himself, and yet the threat is often focused on a single soul or very, mere few rather than the whole of mankind, at least, at least within the story. And I'm going to toss this over to Fedora or to Kathleen. Oh, yeah, Fedora. Technique number four, it is backstory. Backstory is very valuable in any kind of mystery. And this is something that uh, was asked earlier, too, about the shape of a mystery. And it starts off with some kind of premise or some kind of interesting point. Often that's going to be a murder in the first few pages, though it doesn't certainly have to be. Headed toward the black moment, when everything looks so bleak that nothing can possibly positive come from it. In the meantime, what you have is the rising complication. And the way that you create this complication without getting the slumps, the middle of the book slumps, is largely about judicious exposition of important backstory. And important backstory can be about characters that don't have anything to do with anything, but they're just interesting and something you can drag in in the uh, scope of creating different possibilities as to who the culprits might be. So that is where you get the impetus for going from the starting point all the way up to the black moment. And then after that is a very quick drop-off, a quick denouement. And as they say, the first two pages sell this story. The last two pages sell your next one. Yeah. 
never heard that, but I like it. Oh, it's true. It's very true. With that, um, I'm going to throw out, do you have any other rules that you want to point throughout there? Or if not, I want to ask everybody a question. Go ahead. Go ahead with your question. Well, okay. Real fast here. Or let's, oh, I'm sorry, you got something? No. Oh, um, I can go after the question. Okay. I wanted to go around the proverbial table and ask you, A, if you have a favorite mystery author or store or series, and B, why? And I'm, I'll start off because uh, there's no one to ask me that question. So I've got three. And funny how all of them are actually, I'm sorry, people. Walter Mosley is one of my favorite American authors, but these three are all British. P.D. James, who is the queen of crime, um, before she passed away, um, she would write social, economic, psychological mysteries. And they dealt with how people interacted with each other. Um, my other two favorites are Ellis, Ellis Peters, which is not her real name, but she wrote the entire series of Brother Cadfell. See, you like Monk, and I like a Monk <laughs> as a protagonist. He was a former soldier in the Crusades who comes back and becomes a, a monk. In the middle of one of the multiple English civil wars that are going on, and he actually has to solve crime that falls in his path, he's often breaking with the powers that be at his abbey, um, using herba, herba, his knowledge of herbs usually helps solve the crime. Not quite a Sherlock Holmes, more of a every man's version of Sherlock Holmes. And then finally, Lindsay Davis. Written during the Roman Empire, um, I think he, he's more semi-hard-boiled. He tries to be hard-boiled as a character. Um, Marcus Falco um, is the character, but he's really ultimately a smartass. And I just I love the smartass throughout all of it. To use an example, uh, this does not ruin any type of story. No spoilers here. There's one time when she's investigating a murder with the Vestal Virgins. Hmm. And he's... Which, by the way, the Virgins didn't really talk with men in private for obvious reasons. Because you got killed. um, If you lost your virginity as a Vestal Virgin. Um, So he's having to solve a crime. He's talking with somebody. It's late at night. It's with a Vestal Virgin. And they basically have to jump in a... Uh, carriage of some kind to hide from somebody who is from a night watchman. And he, so they jump in together, end of chapter, turn the page, next chapter, only one line. He goes, I swear, nothing happened. <laughs> and next one, I told you nothing happened. Did he go on to the next <laughs> chapter? Um, so yeah, it's definitely, I, I love it for the humor. And with that, um, who would like to go next or should I just go around the table? Melanie. Oh, um, I, frankly, lately I haven't been reading mysteries, so, um. It doesn't matter, any of your favorites. Um. Mm. We can come back to you. Yeah, come back to me. Chanel? Oh, jeez. I haven't, um, I'm not the biggest, like, actual mystery reader, because I like to find mystery elements in other genres of books. Like, 
So if you were to ask me right now what my favorite mystery element containing series would be, it'd be Harry Potter. Okay. And then over to, I'm going to go Ryan and then Brad and over to Kathleen. Um, I remember when I was little, I, uh, the, like the really, like the mystery I read that really got me into mystery uh, was the Westing game. Love Westing game. Um, and then later on, I got into Sherlock Holmes, and I really enjoy Sherlock Holmes. It's just because of the world and everything, and then how it just takes one, you know, one little intricate series of things that you'd never think about. Um, and then I don't know if it counts, but I suppose it has mystery elements too. I I love the Dresden Files. Uh-huh. I absolutely love the Dresden Files, and I I have yet to actually really kind of go to Chicago, but I want to go to that Chicago. You know, I don't want to go to that one, and I don't want to be disappointed, uh, because I love it. I love the world that it generates, and the little, just the factions and the people. Um, those are my things. Okay, Brad? Uh, so, it sounds like a cop-out, but it's actually true, so it's Agatha Christie. Um, and it, it totally goes back to the earliest days for me, uh, when I first started reading Mysteries, uh, because, you know, uh, Death on the Mile, or uh, Death in the Orient Express, Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile. Thank you. Uh, I knew I was getting those confused and mixed-elated. Anyway, point being that those books uh, and the movies that followed and uh, the incarnations that came about, I really enjoyed. And it was, in a way, I guess, the way she does it is a little uh, formulaic in the way we've been talking, so you can kind of see it, so... For me, as a proto-writer, it was really kind of cool to see the way that mysteries uh, were set up and to kind of be able to crack that code. So uh, she will always be some of my favorites, uh, and, you know, there's some great characters there. Just real fast, and I'm throwing over to Kathleen, but since you brought up Agatha Christie, in at least the Blu-ray version of Murder on the Orient Express with Kenneth Branner as Hercule Proudhoff, so it's the latest one, people. There are some recordings of Agatha Christie talking about how to write a mystery. Check it out. Over to you, Kathleen. St. Louis County Library has it on Blu-ray, just so you know. There you go. Because that's how I saw it. Um, Well, I I love paranormal investigation mysteries. So um, uh, I think my... I I grew up reading Nancy Drew and this Christian mystery series. um, And then there were none terrified me so much but it was great and started an Agatha Christie phase and um Michael Crichton also wrote wonderful mysteries Mary Higgins Clark wrote wonderful mysteries that were super fun um but yeah now I I tend to get my mysteries in paranormal investigation so I mentioned the Patricia Briggs Mercy Thompson series um Anita Blake was a former okay, series we can talk by Laurel K. Right. Hamilton so we're gonna say up to book nine. Up to a point. When you hit Obsidian Butterfly, stop. <laughs> Up to a point, it, there is mystery and detective work and crime solving. And then yes. after that, it gets more it into... It becomes an erotica series and less... You, less you get more mystery. into the character's life and her erotic problems and etc. But before that, it is actual detective work, I promise. When you get to the book where Edward asks her to come help him, read that, and then stop. Um, The really interesting thing is there's a couple of books after that that aren't too bad, but they're just kind of sprayed in the middle where you can't figure out why. They are in, they're in what I call the muck. So... 
So like you need someone else to read them to give you a review before you decide whether or not. I I've, um, I've been that person. Yeah. War for the Oaks by Emma Bull was good. Um, I like the the Vicki Nelson series um, by Tanya Huff, which also has a great TV series that goes with it. So yeah, like I'm more of an author's person than than series person, but like there are some great paranormal investigation anthologies too that you should look up. Cool. Um, I do want to throw out there, I met, we mentioned Walter Mosley, and he is in my top ten. Um, but I want to say, to the right pack, you've heard me talk about a, it's not a mystery, but it is a, both a play and a series of short stories about a man, a black man, who gets killed by, his, by being mistaken as a crook. Well, okay, it's not exactly morally good, but he, goes, he dies, he goes to heaven, heaven says you don't belong here, you're supposed to go to hell. And he says he doesn't just say no to that. He says, "Oh hell no," and goes back to goes back to the earth. And the whole entire rest of this series talk or play, depending on what you want, what you're doing, is about one of the angels and the devil trying to get him to sign over a contract, saying, "Yes, I'm going to hell." That whole entire com- comedic thing that was written by Walter Mosley. So, if for those who are fans out there who want to know what I'm talking about. Look for the book, The Tempest Tales. And with that, um, any other final things to take us out on mystery? Didn't you have mysteries? Oh, yeah. What was your favorite? Oh, yeah, your favorite mystery. I missed you. Like, I thought we were ending on her for a reason. I'm sorry. Yeah. We are. Well, of course, I love my own mysteries. In fact, there's scarcely any mystery out there that I don't love. But I will mention three people who are alive today that I admire. Kathy Lynn Emerson, Victoria Thompson, Steve Hawkinsmith. And my favorite of all time is a granddaddy, the first mystery novelist, the first real mystery novelist ever, Wilkie Collins. He is the granddaddy of it. And his book, The Moonstone, is still my idea of the perfect mystery. And with that, um, any final statements on mystery? I am going to leave a mic running because I do want to share how I ended up meeting um, Ed McBain. And actually having a very long conversation with someone, when I want to share that online. But I'm going to do that as the after part of the episode. So any final statements? Go for it. Why didn't he name himself Hunter McBain? Because that is the coolest name ever. I agree. We didn't discuss that one at that time. But um, with that, in that case, tune in next week for yet another interesting topic in the writing industry. And please like us on Facebook. Please share this episode with your friends. And please subscribe to whatever um, platform you're listening to. And leave reviews. And with that, thank you for listening. And now for the after part. So, um, Ed McBain, one of his main bad guys that runs this series, is known as the Deaf Man. He's kind of like, if you know Sherlock Holmes... He's kind of like the Moriarty of Ed McBain's world, who always takes on the precinct. Well, um, there used to be a bookstore here in St. Louis called Library Limited. Oh, I still I miss them. them. And Ed McBain came to do a signing. And this is before I really became, got involved in the writing community. So meeting somebody of his caliber was beyond belief. Well, my, if you listen to the last episode, because I know our listeners are still listening, I talked about my background with American Sign Language. Well, my best friend, who we grew up together from backwards, is deaf. And he came, he wanted to come to Ed McBain's signing, because he loved Ed McBain, because of the deaf man. 
So Ed McBain's talking and doing his reading and so forth, and I am doing my best to interpret. I am not fluent, people, but I'm not bad. I was back then. I wasn't as bad as I am now because I'm rusty as Hades, and I'm just signing and signing and signing the the entire conversation. And in the end, after Joe, who's my best friend, got his book signed and I got my book signed, Ed McBain says, "You two hang around afterwards." Because he wanted to know Joe, he wanted to know me, why why the sign language and all that. He was just fascinated to hear was somebody from the deaf community coming to listen to him and bringing somebody to interpret with him. So it was fun. We got to talk. We spent a good 30, 45 minutes just talking to him after the rest of his fans had been dismissed, if you will. Sadly, um, he did pass away a few years ago. So, And with that... We end the total of this episode. Take care, all. The new theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.